didn't we? We promised we would come back to what happens next, and here we are. But we're going to do it slightly differently. We're not going to spend two years going through Exodus. We're going to spend eight weeks. There's a reason for this. First of all, let me mention this. Listen, Listen clearly. Being a Christian, being a Christian, can be and look very different to living as one. Being a Christian can look very different to living as one. We can be Christians and yet we can still, for decades after, if not all of our lives, we can have certain thought patterns that we know are unhelpful. We even know are lies when we reflect on them, but when we're in the moment, they don't sound like it. Certain ways of thinking, certain fantasies, certain addictive aspects of our personality, perhaps. Certain anxieties that we know when we write them down on paper sound ridiculous in face of a great good God, and yet we still have them, don't we? Certain behaviours, certain emotional responses when a certain person walks in the room and we crumble or get angry or bristle because they're in the room. When you write it down on paper, it sounds ridiculous. And yet sometimes we can be prone to that kind of thing. Sometimes there can be behaviours, there can be ways of thinking, places you turn to that can either be destructive or even just be embarrassing if you knew other people knew about it. Who can relate to any of that? It's not just me then. It's all of us, isn't it? Being a Christian can look very different in real life because we carry baggage that we can't shake off sometimes. Or we think we can't. This is a, an excellent book. If you want to get a copy, get a copy. It's Redemption by Mike Wilkerson. This is what this series will be based on. It didn't start as a book. The book came from a course. It came from a group he ran. It's a redemption group he used to run. He's, from, he's a pastor from Seattle in, in America, in the States. And he used to lead these courses, redemption courses. And basically, for anyone, not anyone with any special problems, if you're in a redemption group, you're one of the ones with the really big problems, is for anyone. Elders included. We've all got stuff, haven't we? And this is for anyone to work through areas of their life they recognise, they think they've laid it across and walked away, but secretly they've picked the rucksack up again, or they keep going back. We can keep returning to old habits, old ways of thinking, the fleshly ways. We can still give in to temptation. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're immune to sin. Legally, you're set free from it, but that doesn't always look like it in our everyday real life, does it? this, This is what the group does, and the group takes people through eight landmarks of the Exodus story, of God's people being rescued from slavery in Egypt into freedom. And... These eight landmarks pinpoint certain areas of our life. We can, we can focus on one area of your life that you want to say goodbye to and you need help with. Working through these eight landmarks, you can lay them at the foot of the cross and be free. And quite often there's other things. So sometimes it's worth going through the process, rinse and repeat over and over again as well. There's always other stuff that God pinpoints, I want to deal with that now. And that's for later, but right now I want to work with you on this. But on our own, we can't do it, but God can. And this, I I went through a course. I I did the group back in uh, February, some other church leaders in relational mission. It's fantastic. Working through it together. And in the new year, I'm going to run a group. I've already got someone who's already signed up for it. So uh, we'll give you more details nearer the time. But we thought the best way is just to present to all of you guys in eight sermons the principles that the group adheres to and what actually works. It's about applying the story of the Exodus is rightly so applied to our own lives as as how we become a Christian. God's people are set free from slavery into freedom. And it echoes the greater story of what God was about to do through his son, of setting people free across the world to be free to be his people. That's what happens when you become a Christian. It's the same story. There are echoes. There's a, a mirror effect there. However, it also applies to areas of your life since then as well. 
The same principles apply. It's not just about salvation, it's also about sanctification, being made holy, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And today will be mainly an introduction, a reminder of the story and reading some of it. And, um, and I'll just focus on one principle right at the beginning, the first kind of landmark moment that happens with God's people. And there'll be a little take-home for you. And then, but over the following seven Sundays, we'll be delving deeper into it and unpacking it until you see the whole picture. But um, I will say this, for this to be effective, it will require honesty on our part. Who likes being honest with themselves? When you repent and you say sorry to God, do you just say, sorry God, I was naughty? Or do you, even in your mind, not necessarily out loud, do you say what you did? Because saying what you did to him can be just as hard. I'm sorry I looked at. I'm sorry I spoke to someone that way. It's easy to just go, I'm really sorry. When, with Amy, sometimes, if you asked her to say sorry, so it would pick on you. But if, if we ask her to say sorry, sometimes sorry for what? And that's the hardest bit. Sorry for X, Y, and Z. Actually, even in prayer, that can be really hard to say to Father. We need to be honest with ourselves, need to be honest with him if we want to see any change. Any change at all. And also in our growth groups, vulnerability will unlock a lot of things. If you want to see healing amongst the church, if you want to see healing in areas of your life, it will take vulnerability, bravery. Knowing growth group is a confidential setting. What says, is said in those four walls can and should stay in those, inside those four walls. Keep it within the group. Keep it confidential or just to one other person if necessary. But be willing to be vulnerable because there you will find healing. Also, that's scary, I know, but it will be worth every effort. So let me explain. First of all, redemption, the word redemption, to be redeemed. We've already mentioned the word redeemed twice in the songs this morning. We don't always know what it means. We think we do. We get an idea. To be redeemed is to mean to have your, your freedom purchased. You've been bought out of slavery with a price. That's what it means, to, to pay to release a slave. Just leave that with you for now. I'll unpack that a little bit more later on how it applies to the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. But redemption is purchased freedom. Now, we can have our freedom purchased, but we don't always experience it in different corners of our heart, do we? And that's what this is about. Let me just set the scene. If you recall, at the end of Genesis, we finished last autumn. I think it was November, wasn't it? We finished with the story of Joseph. God's inside man. He's Israelite by blood. He's one of God's people by blood, but he gets effectively adopted as an Egyptian, becomes their prime minister. His family, long story, he gets reconciled with his family and they come to live with him. And there's about 70 of them, the wider family in total, now living in Egypt. God's man by blood, but adopted as an Egyptian, on the inside, starts a story that God has got a great plan for. That's about 1800 BC, roughly, when Joseph was around. Skip 400 years forward. So the the gap between Genesis chapter 50 and Exodus chapter 1 is about 400 years. Suddenly, these 70 people have multiplied to about probably even close to a couple of million. They like having the babies. They, they, they are multiplying and multiplying. And this causes a problem, because by now a new king has come along, obviously, they don't last hundreds of years. A new king has come along, he doesn't, the Bible says he, doesn't, he didn't know Joseph. He had no care for history, for what one of his uh, previous pharaohs you know, had an affinity with Joseph, almost like a brother. It was, he didn't care about that. He just saw this scourge of millions of God's people, these Israelites, taking over his land, and he wanted to deal with it. And we've seen similar going on in 1939-ish in Germany. It's a similar principle. It's like, I want to do something about this. And he puts them into slavery, and he makes them build his major cities. 
Now then, the thing is, the more they get oppressed, the more they multiply. It's like you squeeze them and more babies pop out. The more they get, it's weird. It's, the more they get oppressed, the more they multiply. I'm not quite sure how that works, but that's what it says. That's what happened. So the more they multiplied, the more the Pharaoh got the ump, and the more he oppressed them. And it becomes this ruthless cycle of abuse. It's awful. This slavery gets horrible. Now, focus on this. These guys, God's people, they have a major problem. They are in slavery, and it seems to get worse every time they try and wriggle. They can't free themselves. They're stuck. They're in bondage, literally. They need rescue. How? Where can they find rescue? They can't rescue themselves. They need help. Exodus 2, verse 23. Just going to read a few verses, a few snatches, and that's what we'll be doing throughout the Exodus story. We're not going to be reading loads and loads of chapters just for the sake of time. But basically, God has... <coughs> there's this guy called Moses who, like I say, just like Joseph, was God's inside man. He was one of God's people by blood, but he gets literally adopted as one of the Egyptians. And through a crime, a murder, he gets kind of excommunicated. He ends up out in the wilderness, got married. And in the meantime, God's people back in Egypt, verse 23, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, their forefathers. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. First of all, they cried out and he heard them. So then what happens? Then there's, for many of you, I'm sure it's a famous scene with the burning bush. Moses is out in the wilderness tending his new father-in-law's sheep and he comes across a bush that's on fire. And what's weird is that the branches aren't being, aren't being eaten up by the flames. And a voice comes out of it and suddenly he realises, God has come to meet me. And he starts conversing with God, starts talking with God. And this is what God says, chapter 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now see what's happened here. God's people, recognizing they cannot rescue themselves, and every time they try and wriggle, they get deeper into trouble. They cry out. And what does God do? He hears. And what does he do after he's heard? He comes down and promises rescue. Now, again, as I've already pointed out, that reflects what happens when you become a Christian. You cry out to him, recognizing you're a sinner, you're desperately in need of hope, you are doomed to eternity without him, without all that is good. And yet, because of what his son has done on the cross, you can cry out to him and he hears you, he comes down, he rescues you. He promises a promised land, effectively. It's the same story. However, I've already mentioned this rinse and repeat process. We often need to apply this to different areas of our life where we keep trying to step back into the place of slavery. We can find ourselves returning to relationships, perhaps, that are toxic. People we shouldn't be hanging out with because of the influence they have on us or we allow them to have on us. Certain habits, I'll be listing some more later. Certain addictive aspects of your personality. Things you just can't get rid of you know isn't good for you and yet you keep going there for solace. It's trying to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. It's the same thing. Perhaps just emotional responses that just are irrational, but you can't help yourself. Oh, it's the way I'm wired. Does it honour God? In which case, we need to do some business, don't we? Perhaps God's already stirring up something. Holy Spirit's nudging something in you now. I would say this. Don't try and fix everything in your life. But if there's 
even while you're asking, and we're going to have opportunity at the end as well, just ask quietly between you and Holy Spirit, what one thing do you want me to deal with right now? We'll all have something. While that's floating, let's just look at those four aspects. They cried, he heard, he came down, and he rescued. First of all, crying out. Recognising we have a problem in the first place. See, the AA, they, they recognise this is a big issue. If you want to get help, you've got to know you need it. And the very first step in Alcoholics Anonymous is admitting you have a problem and asking for help. That's the first step. If you don't do that, you're on a hiding for nothing. You won't heal. You won't recover. There's a, um, there was an American author called David Foster Wallace. He uh, sadly took his own life a few years ago. He's an author and an essayist, and he wrote a, an essay called This Is Water. It's only a few pages long, you can find it on the internet. This Is Water, it's brilliant. He is agnostic, effectively. don't think he ever found faith, really. But he recognised we are always worshipping. It's always a question of what we're worshipping. And the key is, most people don't even realise that. And so he calls this essay, This Is Water, and he starts by setting the scene. He says, there's two fish swimming along, two young fish bumbling along, enjoying, the, enjoying life just not really aware of their surroundings, just taking it for granted, really, bumbling along. And an older fish is swimming the other way. Imagine a bit of Finding Dory going on. There's an older fish comes away, and he passes the two younger fish. He goes, morning, boys. How's the water? Off he goes. And the two young fish just carry on. And then after a while, one of them turns to the other and goes, what's water? You see, quite often we cannot be aware of quite what's going on, appreciate the reality. And quite often we can find ourselves getting stuck in patterns, stuck in habits, returning to relationships we shouldn't. And actually, we can actually be blind to the fact that it's an issue. Or we realise it's an issue, but be blind to what's actually really going on behind the scenes there. It's a spiritual concern. We need to be aware of the problem. When we're aware of the problem, we need to be willing enough to admit it. We need to be willing enough to cry out, to ask for help. Now, I know there is such a thing as willpower. I know people who have been smoking 20 a day and decided to stop, and they stop. Not everyone can do that. Most people can't. I know people who can. I was hearing an interview on Radio 1 recently, just a couple of weeks ago, about a guy who realised um, he was addicted to pornography. It was just ruining his relationships. He realised it was a problem, so he stopped it. He went cold turkey, and three months later, he still hasn't looked at it. 99.9% of people who are addicted to pornography can't do that. He had willpower. However, I would suggest that in other areas of his life, he's unable to fix a problem. Willpower is okay in certain areas, certain segments of our life, but actually, when you look at it, the rest of the life isn't perfect and isn't fixed. Willpower doesn't go right across the board. You might be able to apply it to certain areas, depending on who you are and your nature and your nurturing, but it won't fix all your problems. Willpower is not the answer. Self-control is only when it's birthed by Holy Spirit. Self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The only self-control, the only form of effective willpower, if you like, is the will of God at work in you. Self-control. That is the only thing that will work in that respect when it comes to self-discipline and obedience. So we need to recognise the problem at stake, first of all. And that's being open to listening to Holy Spirit to nudge things for us. And then it's crying out. Recognising and crying out. And when we cry out, in all humility, we recognise there is a God who hears us. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Jeremiah 23, verse 24, I think it is. Let me just find it. Jeremiah 23. Yes, verse 24. It says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. 
Do I not feel heaven and earth? He sees everything. He hears your thoughts. The devil can't hear your thoughts. Don't give him enough credit. He cannot hear your thoughts. God can. God knows everything. He knows what you're going to ask for before you ask it. That doesn't mean we don't ask it. He wants you to. He wants you to cry out and he hears you. James 4 verse 8 says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And it's when we draw near to God and we see him drawing near to us, that's when we recognise he was under our noses all along. The presence of God, the issue with that, is less about his availability and more about ours in that moment. He's there all along, ready and waiting. I want to work with you. Come forward to me in all submission and I'm going to do a great work in you. But you've got to recognise it. You've got to want it. Because also, sometimes these places we run to for relief or comfort that are actually enslaving us, we like it. That's why we go back there. Sin isn't like toothache. Sin is nice. If it was just like toothache, we wouldn't touch it with a barge pole, would we? It's only after we regret it and feel the pain. At the moment, we love it. That's why we keep going back there. We need to recognise this. We need to cry out. He will hear us. Believer, I say this to you. In Christ, God is always nearer than you think. Never forget that. We can lose sight of that. It's always nearer than you think. So we cry out. He hears us. He comes down to meet with us in the moment. And he's proved that fundamentally in coming down to us. Son of God coming down in the flesh, putting a suit of flesh on, moving into the neighbourhood, coming down as one of us to live the perfect life we couldn't live and to bear the brunt of our sin, of our shame, of our stains, the darkness in us, the selfishness. He bore that perfect God who he should be Teflon coated, should slide off him. He just can't even come anywhere near it. He allowed it to rest upon his shoulders on the cross in place of you and me to suffer the wrath of the Father that we deserve. He's a God who comes down to rescue us. We spent however many weeks, eight, nine weeks was it, in John chapter 1 over Easter, didn't we? About a God who comes down to us. And that's where the cost is in redemption. Remember, redemption is purchased freedom. In this Exodus story, Pharaoh was never paid a penny. God never paid him to release those slaves, to buy them off him. Pharaoh was never paid a penny. In fact, he lost everything he treasured. And in our redemption, as believers, Satan is not paid a penny. In fact, he is in the process of losing everything he treasures. It's exactly the same. The cost is in God absorbing the cost. That's where the price, the purchased freedom, that we sung in... Um, uh, what's the song? To God be the glory. The third verse. That purchased redemption. The, pur- the purchase of blood. It says Christ suffered on that cross. There was the cost. There was the price he paid. Satan wasn't given a thing. Don't, don't get that wrong. Christ came down to us and rescued us via the cross. That's where he paid the price over our slavery to free us. That's why Colossians 1.13. It's a brilliant verse. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, Egypt, same thing, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, freedom, promised land. That's where he's delivered us, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, when you place your trust in him, devote your life to following him, let him be Lord of your life, let him take over the steering wheel of your life, you are now legally free. 
You're no longer in Egypt. You are in, effectively in the promised land. We'll receive it fully one day, but we're in the promised land. You are free. However, whoever feels like that? Don't always, do we? Probably more often than not, we don't feel like that, do we? And this is the point I want to make. Because he promises rescue, but we're in the now and not yet. He has rescued us legally. There is still more greater to come. One day we'll be free from sin and shame and death, again like we were singing earlier. One day we'll be with him forever on this new redeemed earth. You are legally redeemed, and yet you can either want to feel like it, but you don't. Or you can actually just living, be living as if you're not. And look, your lifestyle can look no different to your unbelieving neighbour. That can happen. You can be saved, but your life may not look like it, and you may not feel it. Both of those are a problem. Because I'll say, look, I'll say this. To experience the Christian life isn't like the world talks about experiencing stuff, as in sensation, sensory. I want to feel all the buzz and go into a rave, and I want to, I want to get all the warm, fuzzy feelings. That's not what Christianity is about. You experience the Christian life and the fullness of the abundant life he promises. You experience that by living it out. By being obedient. That's where the experience comes. It's not about warm, fuzzy feelings. Yes, he gives us joy, peace, hope, security. He does do that by Holy Spirit. But it's not about... We're not a theme park, is what I've heard before. This isn't a theme park coming here for the thrill of it and the feelings. It's about an obedient life. And as we do that, we step into greater freedom with him trusting him that he knows best you are, if you are his you are legally redeemed there is a way to experience it and that is giving over aspects of our life to him if you don't know him yet perhaps you need to enter that freedom for the first time today perhaps you've been coming along and hearing this over and over again and Holy Spirit's nudging you perhaps even right now to say today's the day step into that freedom Step into that freedom. It starts, every long journey starts with one step. And that one step will legally free you before a living God and destiny you to eternity with him and all that is good. And if you are a believer, perhaps you're not experiencing that fullness of life that he promises you. Perhaps you realise that, yes, you have been granted freedom, but you haven't fully grasped it. Does that make sense? been granted freedom but have you fully grasped it because even 700 years later after these people were freed Isaiah chapter 30 you recognize they're facing trouble and where are they turning for solace and shelter Egypt the place of their old slavery they're turning back there for help and comfort and God's saying to them what are you doing what are you doing Isaiah 30, verse 15, he says, Turn to me, return to me, find your rest in me. That's where you were enslaved. That's where you're in bondage. That's where you couldn't help yourself get out of it. You were stuck and doomed. And I rescued you. Why on earth are you turning back to them? And yet in our own lives, we can still keep going back to old ways, old habits, old places, old people. We can still do it. We're returning back to Egypt. And that's despising all that he's done for us, isn't it? Let me tell you a story about a guy called Timothy Gray. It's a true story. Timothy Gray was found dead in 2012 in America. He was, um, he was a homeless guy. And uh, he was found dead from hypothermia underneath an, a Wyoming overpass in the States. He was found by some kids out sledding. 
The cold had killed him. His lifestyle effectively had killed him. He'd been adopted as a kid, but he'd lost contact with his family and just had no contact with them for 20 years, living on the streets. It's a really sad story. But here's the thing. Here's one thing. There's two. One thing. They found on him, on his wallet, they found a bunch of undeposited checks. See, through choices, through his lifestyle, and through actually having the answer in his wallet that he hadn't even taken to the bank to get some money, that had led to his destruction and to his demise. He had the answer with him all along. He chose not to do something with it. But then here's the other thing. He was unaware that he had died joint heir to a mass fortune and he himself was worth $19 million. So he was legally, by adoption, rich and free. And yet he was enslaved by ignorance and choices which proved his demise. Legally, he was in the promised land. Functionally, he was still in Egypt. That sounds crazy. It's just through choices and ignorance, that's where he was. And we as God's people can be the same. Legally, we can be free. We are his. You are eternally secure in the promised land. And yet right now on this planet, functionally, we can be in Egypt. Either by choices, you can willfully choose to go there sometimes, or just stupid choices, which you're just not consciously putting any effort into decisions you're making. Or even through ignorance of the truth of what the Bible says. And that's what this morning and the next few weeks are all about. Knowing the truth of what it says. Through that, you can still be living in Egypt sometimes. Or, like the Israelites in Isaiah 30, hundreds of years later, wanting to go back. Can anyone relate to that? <clears throat> Some of my story, this isn't always about... <coughs> uh, kind of what we might call the big stuff or whatever. This isn't always about... Yeah, being a Christian yet taking heroin or whatever. This is, this is all aspects of your life. I mean, for me, here's one example. This, this is what I worked through back in February. When I was growing up, I had very little affirmation or validation. My parents did love me, but they had no idea, bless them, how to show it, partly because of their upbringings as well. Um, if, I, if, I, if I wanted to know, if, if I wanted some encouragement, or what did you think of this story I wrote, or this picture I drew, or this thing I did in the school play, I'll get a one syllable answer. And as a kid, I wanted more than that. I wanted to know I was being interested in, they took interest in me, and I wanted affirmation, I wanted validation, as kids do. And I grew up trying to find it elsewhere. I wanted everybody to love me. And so at school, when I was 11, 12, 13, I'd be telling my friends about this amazing new Star Wars toy that everybody wanted. I had it. And they're like, oh, Steve's got the new Millennium Falcon, that big one. Oh, it's brilliant. Oh, great. Hey, Steve's a right proper Star Wars fan. And then when they come around, they want to see it, and I have to explain that my sister had broken it. It was in the bin. Twice, I'd lied to their face. I never had that toy. My sister never broke the toy that didn't exist. But I wanted people to love me, so I'm bigging up, lying to my friends. It's crazy, lying to my friends' faces. I've got that toy that everybody wants. They go, oh, Steve, big lad. And when you come around, well, where is it? Oh, my sister broke it. It's gone. Barefaced lies. It's because I wanted affirmation and validation. I was looking for it in the wrong place. And so as I grew up, it became less about lying to my friends about toys I had as an adult. It became different. I'd avoid confrontation with people. I wouldn't want people to not like me, so I wouldn't say when I disagreed with them. If they come up with an opinion that's a bit crazy, I'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
joining in with them. And then someone will say the opposite, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. You write this thing down on paper, it just looks bonkers. But when you're in that moment, that's how you're living. You're being swayed by seeking man's approval all the time. And it, can, it commands your choices. You don't get to say no. That's something I've had to learn over the years. I've had to learn how to confront peacefully in order to seek reconciliation and restoration. But I've had to confront people and say that's not right. It's not about being rude or arrogant, but there's, there's a necessary confrontation sometimes that's needed, isn't there? And I was rubbish at it because I didn't want people to dislike me. And it wasn't until I recognised this was an issue. But what's water? I recognised there's a problem here. And I recognised it was spiritual. It was more than just a thing. And when I turned to a father who already affirmed me in Christ, who already validated me in Christ, I cried out to him, I, need, I just need to recognise, help me to remember in those moments that I am loved by you so much that your son died for me. Knowing that you have destined me to be yours forever. In that moment, it's okay if I say to this person, I don't agree with you. Or I don't like you. Can we talk this through? Knowing you've got a father who's got your back and who is interested in you, even if no one else is. It's a hard thing to walk through. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a process I'm going through. I'm a lot better at it now. But it was this rinse and repeat process here of, I cried out, he heard me, and he comes down in that moment, having already come down, and he promises him your rescue. He says, there's an answer here. But this applies to all aspects of our life. It applies to how we deal with money, how we hoard it, or how we spend it to feel better. It can apply to how we feed our sexual desires. It's okay to have sexual desires. They're God-given. It's how you feed them that's the issue. Yeah? Identity, where you find your identity. Do you find it in him and what he's done for you and what he thinks of you and where he's now placed you legally? Or do you find it elsewhere? Identity in being a certain type of person you're trying to live up to. Trying to be loved by everyone. Do you find your identity in your, I don't know, illness or your circumstances or your background? Your race or your colour? Or is your identity in him? But also, as I mentioned already, about addictive aspects. Things like comfort eating, maybe. Alcohol, it's all right to drink alcohol, but do you turn to it for a crutch? Or can you go for a day or a week without it? Good question to ask. Could you go for a year without it? Good question to ask. <clears throat> shopping. Do you turn to shopping, comfort shopping? Pornography is always a big one these days for women as much as men these days. It's a scourge. But even work as well. Putting the hours in so you seem to be working a lot and everybody thinks highly of you, or you put the hours in so you feel better about yourself because you're trying to make up for something else. You're guilty that you're not doing enough. You worry you're always letting people down. It can be anything that is impulsive, that ultimately never satisfies. In the moment you think it does, it's not when you step back and reflect on it you realise it doesn't. Or it could be something that outright is destructive and damaging and yet it still woos you and you still hear that voice and you keep returning to that ex-lover. Keep returning to Egypt. Just for 30 seconds or so, just close your eyes. I'm just going to ask Holy Spirit just to point out one thing. What one thing does he want to speak to you about and he wants to do business with? 
Like I say, it could be somewhere you find your identity that's not in him. It could be something sexual, it could be something addictive. It could be emotional responses that are irrational and you want to work through. What's at the root of it? Holy Spirit, just come and point to each one of us what it is you want us to deal with now. You want to experience fullness of freedom, fullness of life in you. Show us the one thing. Maureen had a picture last Sunday about a, a box with treasure in it. And it was, it's, there for, it's there for our taking, the treasure he gives us. It's him. But Jenny, just on reflection afterwards, she's just been thinking, actually, she really sensed that there were some people here who found that, even that quite daunting. Because it's such a big thing to grasp. The treasure we have in him, the riches in heaven we have in him to step into, to get hold of, it's quite scary. It's quite intimidating. It's very real. If you're finding it daunting, know that as you cry out, there is a good God who hears you, who comes down and promises you rescue. He will give you the treasure. He will enable you to get hold of it. Just cry out to him. Over the next couple of months, we're going to look at seven more things. We're going to look at what it's like and how we should deal with it when we feel that God's absent, when it seems like he's absent. The issue of forgiveness is a biggie. Or unforgiveness. The issue of shame I'll be dealing with in three weeks' time. The issue of shame is a big, big subject because that, that paralyzes us and hinders us from stepping into freedom. We look at everyday desires, normal everyday desires, but we can feed with the wrong things. We'll talk about that in depth. We're going to talk about hidden idols we've already been alluding to in recent sermons. We're going to pick that apart. Again, hidden idols. We're going to talk about the subject of hope and then we're going to talk about the ultimate goal in this. Just making sure our ultimate goal in this is what his ultimate goal is. If you're, like I say, if you're not a believer, if you don't know Christ yet, but you recognise that your life still goes around in circles, you're not experiencing full freedom, there's something, something not right. There's something out of sync. That's called sin. Sin is less about the things we do, it's more about who we are that makes us do the things we do. It's about something that's a core issue in our hearts. It's called sin. And he has dealt with that on the cross for you. All you have to do is receive it. Cry out to him. Because the God who hears you has already come down and made it possible to promise you rescue. And he's not a God of empty promises. And if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, are you experiencing the fullness he has already granted you? Have you grasped it? Cry out to him knowing he will hear you, come down and rescue you. We're going to sing a song. Would you like to stand? The best way to respond to this, I think, right now is with a song. We're going to sing...